Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 16, The Same Abe Lincoln. Mary Todd lived her life in mansions, often attended by enslaved men and women. On November 5, 1842, the newly named Mary Lincoln awoke in an 8 by 14 room in Springfield's second-best hotel, where the ceaseless ring of a bell clapper marked the arrival of guests, and a nearby blacksmith shop filled the air with the sound of hammers hitting iron and steel. The noise inside the Globe Tavern, located near the Illinois State Capitol, matched the noise outside. Everyone staying at the 30-room inn ate in a common dining area filled day and night. Politicos used the hotel as a meeting place when the state legislature was in session. The Globe had undergone renovations just before the Lincolns moved into one of the $8-a-week rooms at the hotel, where a young couple could live, eat, and get their laundry done. It was a respectable establishment, but considered inferior to the nearby American house, where carpeting and furniture might have been more like what Mary was used to. It was a new world for the 24-year-old. Once an ornament of the Springfield social scene, Mary's name disappeared from most private correspondence after her marriage. The constant clamor of the inn was far removed from the Edwards mansion, where she lived for five years, and made it hard to cope with her recurrent headaches. And with cooking and washing taken care of, Mary had very little to do in her tiny room. As her biographer Jean Baker writes, quote, Here was the kind of existence deplored by the ladies' magazines and advice manuals of the day, which encouraged immediate housekeeping for brides. Ignoring the economic necessity for boarding, keepers of decorum invade against the lassitude of young wives in boarding houses who should be learning the duties of running a household when, instead, they were being taught idleness. Wrote one, women so situated have nothing to do. Public opinion will not allow her to assist her husband, and she cannot interfere in politics. Mary would also have to adjust to her new husband. For all his humor and general good nature, he could be silent and unresponsive. He was sloppy and disorganized, conducting much of his business out of his hat. He never lost his rural manners and showed an ignorance of the social niceties drilled into Mary from her youth. If she asked him to go downstairs to get her a pitcher of water, he would quickly fall into conversation with someone in the ever-crowded common room and lose track of time. Mary had to step out of their room at the top of the stairs and start coughing to get his attention. That was when he was there. Often, he was gone for days or weeks at a time, traveling through central Illinois to argue legal cases and earn a living. Six months into their marriage, when Mary was six months pregnant, he left her alone in their tiny room for four weeks. They loved each other and shared a passion for poetry, the Whig Party, and his political career. Mary's entire education taught her that a woman's highest duty 
was pleasing her husband, and she may have resigned herself to the absences. But the situation exacerbated Mary's natural defensiveness, making her unpopular with other women in the house and further isolating her. In those lonely hours, she may have wondered who her husband, so distant from most people, really was. Abraham Lincoln had few doubts about himself at the end of 1842. He was an attorney and an increasingly important Whig 100 miles and a lifetime away from the bone-weary world of his father. The profound wonder of his marriage, as he put it, may have felt like the completion of his journey into the middle class. Becoming respectable had been a Herculean effort that twice broke him. Yet in the short term, this marriage would help frustrate his political ambitions. Rivals with all his burning ambition would surpass him in the political game. And in the next decade, Lincoln would see the Whig Party, the foundation for many of his achievements, crack and fall apart. Lincoln remained loyal to the Whigs, almost to their hour of death. But he and other Americans would have to ask themselves whether the party could stand up to the forces of American oppression, raging at their confinement in the South and determined to spread across the country. The period between 1842 and 1855 would be a time of retrenchment and even stagnation for Lincoln, and the fading Whig cause became a chain around his ambitions. To become something more than respectable, Lincoln would have to leave behind the political orthodoxies of his youth. But for now, Lincoln remained a politician on the rise who had his eyes on a congressional seat. Reapportionment after the 1840 census increased Illinois' representation in the U.S. House of Representatives from three seats to seven. State legislators placed Springfield in the 7th Congressional District, a piece of territory shaped like a bookend that embraced 11 different counties, from Putnam in the north to Sangamon, home of Springfield, in the south. The 7th was the only safe Whig seat in Illinois, thanks to the party's strong presence in Sangamon and neighboring Morgan, the two largest counties in the district. The most prominent Whigs in central Illinois wanted that seat. By 1843, Illinois Whigs had overcome their aversion to political conventions. In a resolution co-authored by Lincoln that March, the state party said, quote, Whether the system is right in itself, we do not stoop to inquire, contenting ourselves with trying to show that while our opponents use it, it is madness in us not to defend ourselves with it. Experience has shown that we cannot successfully defend ourselves without it. The resolution went on to say, quote, That great fabulist and philosopher, Aesop, illustrated it by his fable of the bundle of sticks, and he whose wisdom surpasses that of all philosophers has declared that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Lincoln would return to this image. He reached out to Whigs all around the district for support. To Alden Hall, a former state representative from Tazewell County in the northern part of the district, Lincoln wrote, quote, Circumstance may happen to prevent my even being a candidate. If, however, there are any Whigs in Tazewell who would as soon I should represent them as any other person, I would be glad they would not cast me aside 
until they see and hear further what direction things take. The same day, Lincoln wrote to another Whig, Richard Thomas, quote, Now, if you should hear anyone say that Lincoln don't want to go to Congress, I wish you, as a personal friend of mine, would tell him you have reason to believe he is mistaken. The truth is, I would like to go very much. Lincoln faced two opponents for the Whig nomination, both men he served with in the Illinois General Assembly. The first was John J. Hardin from Morgan County. Hardin was about 33 years old in the spring of 1843. He was a wealthy and handsome man, standing five foot nine, who had recently lost an eye in a hunting accident. Like many Illinois Whigs, Hardin came from Kentucky aristocracy. He was a distant cousin of Mary Lincoln and was related to Henry Clay, the Whigs' founder and champion. Hardin's father had been a U.S. Senator for Kentucky. Hardin County, Kentucky, where Lincoln was born, was named for Hardin's grandfather, another John Hardin, who fought in the American Revolution. But the first John Hardin was also a bloodthirsty frontier fighter, burning the villages and cornfields of Native Americans when he wasn't collecting their scalps. Like Lincoln, the younger John Hardin served in the Black Hawk War in 1832. Like his grandfather, Hardin became a general who burned down an Indian village in the course of the conflict. In the Illinois General Assembly, where he won a seat in 1836, Hardin had opposed the internal improvement program Lincoln championed. When angered, Hardin could be ferocious. As one woman described it, quote, a plain, blunt man when his indignation was aroused. Woe to the man who felt the heavy strokes of his meat axe oratory. But Lincoln and Hardin worked well together. When Lincoln suffered his nervous breakdown at the start of 1841, Hardin took over leadership of the Whig caucus in the House. When Lincoln faced James Shields on a dueling field in the fall of 1842, Hardin helped broker peace between the men. Lincoln once called Hardin our best Whig. His other rival for the nomination was an old friend whose early life reflected Lincoln's transient upbringing. Edward Baker was born in London in 1811. His family immigrated to the United States when Baker was five years old and made their way west. Baker drove a cart for a year in St. Louis, but in the 1830s, he crossed the river into Illinois, where he studied law and fought in the Black Hawk War. Like Lincoln, Baker was a ferocious reader who easily charmed older, well-positioned men. Governor Ninian Edwards, the father of Lincoln's brother-in-law, was so taken by Baker that he let him finish his law studies in his well-stocked private library. Baker was not nearly as tall as Lincoln, but he was strikingly handsome, with gray eyes, a red complexion, and a magnificent set of sideburns. His greatest asset was his musical and far-carrying voice. Paired with a talent for extemporaneous speaking, Baker quickly became the Whig's best orator, named Silver-Tongued Ned. He often appeared with Lincoln at debates and campaign rallies. Joseph Wallace, Baker's earliest biographer, praised his, quote, 
ready, sparkling, ebullient wit. The glancing and playful satire, mirthful while merciless, the keen syllogism, and the sharp sophisms whose fallacies, though undiscoverable, were perplexing, and the sudden splendors of eloquence that formed the wonderful charm of his backwoods harangues. But Baker was, in the words of historian Michael Burlingame, a perpetual adolescent. He craved praise. Usher Linder, who served with Baker and Lincoln in the Illinois General Assembly, later wrote, quote, I have often noticed him after making one of his finest efforts go around the crowd to catch what it might say of his speech. He had more of this kind of vanity than any I ever saw. Baker was flighty and terrible with money. Stephen Logan, who partnered with Baker before working with Lincoln, later said, quote, He got me into some scrapes by collecting and using money, though he made it all right afterwards. As an attorney, Baker lacked a deep understanding of the law, relying instead on the force of his oratory to win cases. He served in both the Illinois House and Senate, but Baker grew restless with legislative procedure and was often absent. Lincoln respected Hardin and was fond of Baker, who he would name his second child after. But only one man could get their party's nomination for Congress. Hardin had Morgan County behind him at the Whig Convention, so Lincoln needed the Sangamon County Whigs to line up for him at a local gathering scheduled in March. That put him in conflict with Baker. As the Sangamon County Convention approached, Lincoln found himself the subject of a whispering campaign. The survivor of rural poverty was rumored to be the candidate of wealth and privilege. As Lincoln later wrote to Martin Morris, an operative in Maynard County, where New Salem had once been located, quote, It would astonish, if not amuse the older citizens of your county, who 12 years ago knew me as strange, friendless, uneducated, penniless boy, working on a flatboat at $10 per month, to learn that I have been put down here as a candidate of pride, wealth, and aristocratic family distinction. Yet, so it was. Abner Ellis, Lincoln's friend, later wrote, quote, Some of Baker's friends accused Mr. Lincoln of belonging to a proud and aristocratic family, meaning the Edwards and Todds, I suppose. Lincoln's marriage was one piece of evidence Baker's partisans used against him. The other was his impulsive and hot-tempered near-duel with James Shields. Dueling was something rich gentlemen did. It was looked down upon by evangelical voters, a key part of the Whig coalition. Evangelicals also heard the old charge that Lincoln was an infidel. Baker was a Campbellite, a forerunner of the modern-day Church of Christ. He embraced the church enthusiastically when he married in the 1830s. It's likely Baker's ardor for religion had cooled by 1843. He struggled to maintain interest in anything for long. But whatever his zeal, Baker was a member of a church, and Lincoln was not. When the Sangamon County Whigs finally gathered in late March, the local party voted to support Baker over Lincoln. Then, against his wishes, 
the Whigs named Lincoln a delegate for Baker at the district-wide convention in Pekin. Lincoln wrote to his friend Joshua Speed, quote, In getting Baker the nomination, I shall be fixed a good deal like a fellow who has made a groomsman to the man what has cut him out, and is marrying his dear old gal. But Lincoln submitted and went to Pekin to fight for Baker's cause. At the convention, Lincoln learned his old friends in Menard County elected delegates instructed to nominate Lincoln for Congress. If the convention split between Baker and Hardin, Maynard could have allowed Lincoln to step in as a compromise candidate. But doing so would have violated his commitment to Baker, threatening a split in a minority party with little room for error in Illinois. George Miles, one of Menard County's delegates, later said Lincoln took him aside and said, quote, My honor is out with Baker. I'd suffer my right arm to be cut off before I violate it. It is impossible for me to run. In the end, Lincoln's honesty was not tested. The nomination went to John Hardin. But Lincoln made a move at the convention that boosted his future prospects. As the Whig delegates lined up behind Hardin, Lincoln pushed through a resolution to, quote, recommend E.D. Baker as a suitable person to be voted for by the Whigs of this district for representative to Congress at the election of 1844. This had two effects. By making an early endorsement of Baker, it limited the popular Hardin to a single term. It also implied that Baker himself would be limited to a single term, after which Lincoln would be the likely nominee. Lincoln's contemporaries argued over his purpose with this resolution. Similar arrangements were common in early 19th century America. Whatever his motive, Lincoln benefited. Lincoln loyally supported Hardin's candidacy and made a bet of a barbecue that Sangamon County's majority for Hardin would be double his margin in Morgan County. But the attacks by Baker's allies weighed on him. Lincoln at one point took his friend James Matheny aside and said, quote, Jim, I am now and always shall be the same Abe Lincoln that I always was. Matheny later recalled that Lincoln said this with great emphasis. Lincoln never blamed Baker for the attacks. But for some reason, he cooled toward Hardin. On election day, Lincoln cast ballots for Justice of the Peace and Constable, but not for U.S. Representative. Regardless, Hardin carried the district with a majority of 873 votes. If politics disappointed him, Lincoln's personal life provided comfort. On August 1, 1843, exactly nine months after their marriage, Mary gave birth to their first son, named Robert Todd Lincoln, after Mary's father. Robert was a fat baby who suffered breathing problems as an infant and cried enough to disturb other boarders at the Globe. Mary may have suffered postpartum depression after Robert's birth, and her husband gave her help, something considered unmanly at the time. One neighbor remembered Lincoln wheeling Robert in his baby carriage on the street. 
other neighbors of the globe overcame their hostility to Mary and lent a hand. Sophia Bledsoe, a six-year-old living at the globe, would carry Robert to a vacant lot nearby and lay him on the grass. While the assistance was welcome, Robert's arrival shrank a small room still further. A few months after Robert's birth, the Lincolns moved to a rented house nearby. The family may have struggled to make this move. When Joshua Speed invited Mary and Abraham to Kentucky in May 1843, Lincoln declined, alluding to Robert's pending birth. He wrote, quote, I reckon it will scarcely be in our power to visit Kentucky this year. Besides poverty and the necessity of attending to business, those coming events, I suspect, would be somewhat in the way. Lincoln was still paying debts from the decade-old Berry and Lincoln failure. He was also providing financial support to Thomas and Sarah Lincoln, living 100 miles east of Springfield in Coles County. Thomas made some bad investments in the 1830s, and to provide relief, Abraham in October 1841 paid $200 for a piece of land that he promptly turned over to his father and stepmother. He also gave Thomas some of his legal fees. At the same time, Abraham was doing legal business for his father-in-law, who visited Springfield at the end of 1843 to see his three daughters and meet his new grandson. Like his son-in-law, Robert Todd was an enthusiastic Whig, and the two men may have discussed the upcoming presidential contest during his visit in Springfield. Robert Todd appears to have been impressed by Abraham and motivated to provide Mary assistance. He began sending her $120 a year to cover their rent, and also transferred some land to Mary to help ease some of the pressures on the young family. Todd and Lincoln probably shared the same confidence heading into the presidential contest that most Whigs did. After the disastrous midterms in 1841 and 1842, the Whigs rebounded in state elections near the end of 1843, which they credited to the protective tariff congressional Whigs passed in 1842. That, they argued, finally ended the Depression brought by the Panic of 1837 and the Whigs believed they had a candidate who could bring out the base that abandoned them in the midterm elections, Robert Todd's mentor and Abraham Lincoln's idol, Henry Clay. Clay was known as the mill boy of the Slashes, based on a somewhat exaggerated account of his childhood struggles in the Slashes, a region of eastern Virginia. Whig propagandists made Clay out to be a poor, fatherless child who had worked in the fields without shoes and pulled his way up. While Clay's childhood was not quite so dire, it was not easy. Clay really did lose his father as a child, and he had to struggle to better himself. Still, the sponsorship of powerful men had as much to do with his rise as his own work. But even if it was inflated, Clay's life story inspired Lincoln and other young professionals who flocked to the Whigs. His decades-long advocacy for what he called the American system, including high tariffs, a national bank, and public land sales to fund internal improvements, spoke to their interests. By 1844, Clay was the master of politics in his native Kentucky. He had been Speaker of the House, a U.S. Senator, a Secretary of State, 
and a two-time presidential nominee. Clay wasn't handsome. He had long arms and a mouth so big it was said he could kiss a woman with one side while the other kept flapping. But he had presence. Clay was tall for his day, standing six foot one. He had striking blue-gray eyes, and he moved with a dancer's grace. In person, he was charming and witty. When a long-winded congressman loftily told then-Speaker Clay that he was speaking to posterity, Clay replied, quote, Yes, and you seem resolved to continue speaking until your audience arrives. And then there was his oratory. Clay had a powerful bass voice that he employed like a skilled cellist, conveying a wide range of emotions to a captive audience. As a young clerk in Richmond, Virginia, Clay heard Patrick Henry speak, and Clay ever after worked to develop his own speaking talents. He read aloud each day to keep his skills sharp. As speeches, Clay's addresses weren't anything special and tend to die on the page. But when delivered by that deep and transfixing voice, Clay cut through people's hearts like a surgeon. A senator once said of Clay, quote, because he felt he made others feel. James Clotter, Clay's most recent biographer, compares his oratory to a great actor with a bad script. He wrote, quote, While others could entertain an audience, Clay, by his power and passion, could also motivate and persuade people. His emotions became their emotions. His heart, their heart. His will, their will. The sincerity, though, could not hide major flaws. Clay was a slaveholder who held 50 fellow Americans in bondage, and a white nationalist whose American system rested heavily on getting African Americans out of the country. In a notorious speech delivered in the Senate in 1839, Clay said, quote, I prefer the liberty of my own country to that of any other people, and the liberty of my own race to that of any other race. The liberty of the descendants of Africa in the United States is incompatible with the safety and liberty of the European descendants. Their liberty, if it were possible, could only be established by violating the incontestable powers of the states and subverting the Union. And beneath the ruins of the Union would be buried, sooner or later, the liberty of both races. Lincoln held these views for most of his life, and we'll look at them in a future episode. Clay had a not entirely deserved reputation for drinking, swearing, and smoking, which caused problems with religious voters. He talked more than was prudent for a national figure. And his previous electoral defeats gave him the air of an also-ran. Many people felt 1844 was Clay's last chance to become president. Still, Whigs were elated at the thought of voting for their hero and encouraged by significant divisions among the Democrats. Whigs expected the Locofocos, as they called them, to nominate former President Martin Van Buren, which would revive memories of the Depression and allow them to fight the contest on economic grounds where they felt most comfortable. In February, William Herndon wrote to John Hardin that Whig meetings in Springfield had, quote, carried enthusiasm, 
to its highest pitch. By the fall, though, Clay's prospects had darkened, thanks to President John Tyler forcing Texas annexation into the national conversation. In 1844, the Republic of Texas was rapidly becoming a failed state. Mired in debt and facing deep internal divisions, the leaders of the Lone Star Republic still managed to launch belligerent and self-defeating invasions of Mexico and the United States that inevitably led to arrests and shameless howls of mistreatment from Texan officials. Mexico did not recognize the independence of what it considered a rebellious province and made it clear it considered annexation an act of war. But the prospect of new land for white farmers and slavery proved too tempting for Democrats to pass up, and they bet everything on bringing Texas into the Union. Van Buren was shoved aside for former U.S. House Speaker James K. Polk of Tennessee, a protege of former President Andrew Jackson. Whigs North and South tried to step around the question, but the Democrats refused to give it up. In the South, Democrats yelled Texas to shout down the economic issues Whigs pushed forward. In the North, Democrats deliberately muddled their free trade beliefs. To hold on to Pennsylvania, where protectionism was very popular, Polk penned a letter to Democrats there where he simply lied about his views on the tariff. The duplicity justifiably enraged the Whigs, but it managed to keep the state competitive. Clay, meanwhile, struggled with the Texas issue. He opposed annexation, accurately predicting that it was, quote, dangerous to the integrity of the Union and likely to lead to war with Mexico. Lincoln agreed, saying in May that annexation was, quote, altogether inexpedient. But recognizing the potency of the issue in the South, Clay wrote what became known as the Alabama Letters. In the missives, Clay suggested he could support annexation if a peaceful arrangement could be made with Mexico. The Alabama Letters may have saved Whig votes in the Upper South, but they disenchanted the fast-growing, Whig-leaning abolitionist electorate in the North and reinforced an image of Clay as indecisive. Lincoln campaigned for Clay in Illinois, emphasizing the tariff issue, and was ready to serve as an elector if the Whigs carried the state. But elections that August made it clear he would stay home that winter. The Whigs were crushed throughout Illinois, losing ground in the state legislature and making few inroads in Congress. The only bright spot was the 7th Congressional District, where Edward Baker won election with a larger margin than Hardin did the previous year. Nationally, the presidential race appeared to be tight. Things were particularly uncertain in neighboring Indiana. In the summer elections there, the Whigs won the Indiana House of Representatives and effectively split the Senate, but Democrats pulled in more votes overall. So, with Illinois lost to the Democrats, Lincoln took a 10-day trip to southern Indiana at the end of October 1844, speaking throughout the area on behalf of Clay and the Whigs. A newspaper in Rockport, Indiana, described one of Lincoln's talks as, quote, plain, argumentative, and of an hour's duration. Rockport is in Spencer County, where Lincoln spent most of his childhood. 
During his speech, delivered in a local courtroom, Lincoln saw his old boyhood friend, Nat Grigsby, walk in the door. Lincoln suddenly exclaimed, There is Nat! He stopped his speech, walked through the crowd to warmly shake Grigsby's hand, and then returned to the front of the courtroom to resume his talk. The two men stayed together that evening. Grigsby later said they, quote, commenced telling stories and talking over old times. The following day, Lincoln and Grigsby walked to Little Pigeon Creek, and Lincoln saw old friends. Happy as he was to see them, the visit revived painful memories of the deaths of his mother and sister. Two years later, Lincoln composed a poem about the journey. He sent a copy to Andrew Johnston, a fellow attorney, writing, quote, That part of the country is, within itself, as unpoetical as any spot of the earth. But still, seeing it and its objects and inhabitants arouse feelings in me which were certainly poetry, though whether my expression of those feelings is poetry is quite another question. The poem speaks to feelings of dread and isolation. It starts, quote, My childhood's home I see again, and sadden with the view. And still, as memory crowds my brain, there's pleasure in it too. O memory, thou midway world twixt earth and paradise, where things decayed and loved ones lost in dreamy shadows rise, and freed from all that's earthly vile seem hallowed, pure, and bright, like scenes in some enchanted isle, all bathed in liquid light. The poem goes on to discuss some of Lincoln's happier memories of his Indiana boyhood, but concludes, quote, The friends I left that parting day, how changed as time has sped. Young childhood grown, strong manhood gray, and half of all are dead. I hear the loved survivors tell how naught from death could save, till every sound appears a knell and every spot a grave. I range the fields with pensive tread and pace the hollow rooms and feel companion of the dead. I'm living in the tombs. Historian David Herbert Donald suggested the visit helped Lincoln complete the grieving process for Nancy Hanks Lincoln and Sarah Lincoln Grigsby. It may also have allowed Lincoln to reflect on the journey he had undertaken. He was no longer the poor son of a family fleeing the milk sick. Through hard work and fortunate connections, Lincoln had pulled himself into the middle class. But his uncertainty over the merits of the poem reflected a soul still trying to find its own voice. Lincoln was very much a party man in 1844, reciting a platform for his preferred candidates and not adding anything new or original to the American conversation. In a few years, he would start a trip into the political wilderness, one that would force him to reflect and develop his ideas in order to confront an issue neither Whigs nor Democrats wanted to discuss in 1844, slavery. Next time, we'll talk about Lincoln's 1846 campaign for Congress. We'll also discuss his new law partner and his efforts to deal with a new factor in Illinois political life, the abolitionists. <laughs> <laughs>